0: It's Tuesday, May 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We're about a month away before the race for the Democratic nomination really starts to heat up. The first debates are happening at the end of June, and it's going to be a packed stage. We will tell you who has qualified so far, and also how the candidates are handling Fox News. Some are refusing to go on the network, and others are doing town halls. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for a 2020 update, including how Dems plan on paying for all of their proposals. Next, similar to a Do Not Call registry, momentum is growing for a Do Not Track registry. A bill was just introduced by Senator Josh Hawley, which would legally require companies to stop collecting data on users who opt out of certain kinds of non-essential tracking. Emily Birnbaum, tech policy reporter at The Hill, joins us for the effort to limit the collection of your data. Finally, as more households are installing smart doorbells, some are using them as nature cameras, checking the video all day long and obsessing over the wildlife at their doors, saying it's better than TV or social media. Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the new nature cam. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: What's going on with Fox, by the way? What's going on there? Putting more Democrats on than you have Republicans, it's something strange is going on at Fox. Something very strange.
0: Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Let's do a check-in with our 2020 Democratic hopefuls. The field has expanded to 24 candidates right now. There's 18 people who have met the threshold to qualify for the first Democratic debate scheduled in late June. Big in the news was Marianne Williamson. She's a best-selling self-help author. And she secured one of her spots after polling at 1% in her third qualifying poll. So who's qualified so far and what are we looking at?
1: So most of the big names that we know have qualified, the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warren's and the Joe Biden's. But you're right, there are 24. And I suspect we might have hit the end of the new candidate list. So we might <laughs> actually have a, a set field. But of those 24, there are still some who are trying to qualify, including some members of Congress. Seth Moulton being one of them. He's a congressman from Massachusetts, is not yet qualified either through polling or through donors. Wayne Messam, who is a, a mayor in South Florida, he is not qualified. And there's still some concern about those who have qualified on one category but not the others. People like New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Washington Governor Jay Inslee. If some of those folks suddenly start qualifying on two factors, the DNC has limited the number of debate spots down to 20. And with 24, if, for example, all of them qualify, then they're going to have to find ways to trim the last four.
0: Yeah, it's going to be sad for those four that (laughs) don't get to make it. And from what I've been seeing also is that they're going to randomly because they can't put all 20 people on stage at once. They're going to do them in two sessions. So 10 and 10. And they're going to randomly select who goes up there. And the first thing that popped in my head is what if you get like a Joe Biden and a Bernie Sanders and then some of the lesser known candidates? I mean, it's just going to be a two person debate. It could possibly shake out that way.
1: Yeah, this dynamic is going to be interesting. If you remember back four years ago when the Republican Party had about 16 candidates running for president, they split it into two nights with sort of a varsity and a JV setup where the top polling candidates were on one stage and those who were the were lower tier candidates were sort of stuck on the at the kids' table, as we all joked at the time. And there was a lot of criticism of that in that those people who were polling below never really had an opportunity to break through because they had been relegated to the earlier left watch debate. Democrats promising to avoid that criticism. They're going to mix them up. And, and you're right, they're going to sort of randomly do it, but it's not entirely random. They're going to take sort of the top 10 and the bottom 10. They're going to put them all each in their own pot. And then half of that one pot and half of the other uh, pot will be on a debate stage. So we will okay. see some guaranteed blending. It won't just be Bernie Biden and then eight folks you've never heard of. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> um, that makes sense. Uh, then
0: I mean, I think that's a good plan just to help even out that playing field there. Let's talk about the big Fox News angle, because there's a few Democrats who've already done Fox News town halls, there are two Democrats, specifically Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, who have said we're not going to do it. I think Elizabeth Warren called Fox News a hate for profit racket that gives a megaphone to racists and conspiracists. Those are some strong words there. But the people that have done the Fox town halls already, Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, they've gotten some uh, good feedback from it.
1: The response to folks like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris is that those are voters watching, that Democrats want to win all of the voters, whether they watch Fox News or MSNBC, and that they should be talking to all of those people. I think that the Democratic Party has had a real struggle with this. You know, they've said that Fox is not hosting any of their primary debates. That was criticized as, you know, if you don't like the content on Fox, you're about to take an hour or two hours where you get to control all the content. Yeah. That's an um, unprecedented access. And, you know, there's clear signs that people don't like that because President Trump took the to Twitter during the Buttigieg town hall to complain that Fox let him go on. So there is some credence to that argument that it, it gets their democratic message in front of people who might not otherwise hear it.
0: It's where the voters are, as you said. I mean, you're opening yourself to a potential new slate of voters, people that might hear something they like, they follow your campaign, and maybe that turns into a vote. Even some of the Fox News hosts or moderators, Chris Wallace in particular with the Pete Buttigieg Town Hall, he said, I've got to tell you, and you can feel it, this is a hot ticket. He said a lot of very positive things about it. And Fox News town halls are winning in the ratings compared to CNN. The Bernie Sanders event drew 2.6 million viewers, Amy Klobuchar 1.6, Pete Buttigieg 1.1 million viewers. When Pete Buttigieg did his town hall on CNN, there was only 545,000 viewers. So it's the place to go just to get those eyeballs.
1: And we know from community surveys, from viewer surveys, that a Fox viewer is less likely to change the channel. That they tend to leave it on through prime time. We know also we can look a report this week that we saw. Beto O'Rourke did a town hall on CNN earlier this month. At that town hall, the ratings for CNN for that hour dropped thirty percent. Oh no! Uh, so people didn't want to listen. They changed the channel. <laughs> didn't give them all the eyeballs he might have hoped
0: for. As we start getting into the debates, as the candidates start putting out more policy proposals, and one of the tough things that they're going to have to square away is how they're going to pay for all of these costly plans. We're hearing about four years of free college, Medicare for all, all sorts of different things, very ambitious plans that the Democrats want to push forward. But how do they pay for it?
1: That's a tricky question. There are some optimistic and aspirational pay-fors in a lot of these proposals. Elizabeth Warren, who has put out more proposals and more costly proposals than I think anybody else in the field, she claims she would pay for hers through a wealth tax, a tax on billionaires and millionaires. Her campaign keeps providing me the accounting that says that they have not spent above what that tax would generate. But it's a bit hypothetical. We don't have that tax. It hasn't actually been passed. We don't actually know how much money it would bring in.
0: Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm introducing legislation called the Do Not Track Act, and it's very simple. It just says that a consumer can make a one-time choice not to be tracked, not to have her data sent to these companies, and to stop them from then selling that data to other companies.
0: Joining us now is Emily Birnbaum, tech policy reporter at The Hill. So online advertising has never been more invasive or more inescapable. A site or an app can carry dozens of different trackers and they build detailed profiles of who you are, what you do online, everything. And after the big Cambridge Analytica scandal that happened with Facebook, there's been a bunch of other data privacy scandals. The danger of what's in those profiles is much more clear. It's a lot of personal data there. And nobody in the tech industry or the government seems really to know what to do about it, except just this week, Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri released some new legislation, a do not track registry, similar to the do not call list. But this would let people opt out of companies tracking their data. What do we know about this?
2: Holly's Do Not Track Act would allow people using an online service to opt out of any data tracking that they say is not necessary for that service to work. So it would create this national list and it would allow users to opt into it, meaning that they would block any secondary data tracking and penalize any companies that continue to collect unnecessary data.
0: I mean, I think this is a great idea. You know, people have been increasingly more knowledgeable about their privacy, their data collection. Obviously, all these scandals help bring it to the forefront of their minds. One of the things that it's so hard to get around is actually the people themselves. We're constantly signing up for services, downloading a new app, and nobody reads the terms of use, the, the all the business stuff that goes on there. The Brookings right. in- Institution did a survey and they asked people... How often they read these terms before providing consent. 32% of people said they never read the items. 39% percent they said they read them sometimes. And 20% of people said they claim they read them most of the time. 9% were unsure. So people are not even reading this stuff. And then it's not until something happens that they get concerned.
2: Congress right now is doing a lot of wrangling over the first comprehensive national privacy law. They haven't put out an official proposal, but there are lawmakers on both sides of the aisle across multiple committees who are trying to come to an agreement on what that would look like. And it's something that lawmakers talk about a lot is you can bury anything in these consent agreements, and it's obviously not adequate for U.S. consumers. So how can we make these agreements easier to read? How can we put them in plainer language? How can we make it so that it's not a burden?
0: For these companies and app developers, all that. I mean, that's what a lot of their business models are centered around is advertising. So of course, by default, they want to collect your data. Back to that brooking institution survey, 78% of people said that they do think the government should establish a do not track registry. So back to Senator Hawley's proposition, what would be the enforcement? What would tech companies be on the hook for if they violate this?
2: Polly's bill would really put the force of law behind the registry, so it would threaten companies with fines of up to $1,000 per person for, quote-unquote, willful or reckless violations, and then $15 per person for, like, negligence. It's yet to be determined who would make those kinds of calls, but it would fine them with pretty steep penalties. Yeah,
0: I mean, that doesn't seem like a lot of money, but when we hear about these data dumps and things like that, I mean, there's uh, millions of people on the hook, so it can get pretty pricey for these companies to violate this. With all of this news, the big tech companies, Google and Facebook, all these people have been a little more amicable towards possible regulations. They've been putting out statements about privacy. Have any of them responded to the news of this bill or possibly signing on to these type of do not track lists?
2: The companies themselves have all declined to comment so far. I think that they wouldn't want to jump into this really fraught and longstanding debate until it becomes a little bit more serious in Congress. But in general, a lot of these companies are probably going to say something like, do not track isn't the way we're looking at much broader privacy legislation. And this doesn't address some of the core issues.
0: It's loosely modeled off of the do not call registry. And everybody knows how well that works. It doesn't. You know, people are still inundated with tons of robocalls. And even that's trying to make its way through the system. Uh, There's people proposing legislation to try to help with the robocalls. Data is king right now. Everybody wants data to make money on the back end of things. And this is a very important issue. And hopefully this gets some traction. How about lawmakers? Are lawmakers getting on board with this?
2: That's also what's a little bit different about this bill is it really is Holly's initiative right now. I spoke to a lot of lawmakers who said that they might be interested in getting on board with it, but that they're going to be having conversations, they're reviewing it. So he doesn't have any co-sponsors yet. But people like Senator Ron Wyden, Oregon and Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut have put do not track elements of do not track in draft bills that they have put out over the past year. So it seems like there is room for bipartisan consensus on this.
0: Emily Birnbaum, tech policy reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. They
3: got so many, they said, okay, we'll make a section of it. And then they ended up doing this commercial using footage from one of the user's cameras of a bear getting into a car. And this is quite the bear. And he opens the door, gets in, sits down, and comes back out.
0: Joining us now is Sarah Needleman, tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal. I love your article. Some people are using their smart doorbells as nature cameras, and they're checking these videos all day long instead of social media. So they're saying it's better than TV and just a, a super short story. I just had a friend on Facebook who posted a video from his ring camera of a snail crawling over the camera. And you know, the snails move very slow. It took like four minutes for it to get fully get away. And it left a little slime trail and everything. And he said, you know, what should I name this snail? Whatever. And then I found your article and it clicked immediately and it, and it makes total sense. Any great nature video requires a couple of good things, some good quality cameras and then that time and patience. And since these cameras are activated by motion, they're constantly recording all day. It's basically doing all that work for you. Tell us a little bit about the story and some examples of what you found out. These
3: cameras alert you on your phone if there's been motion. And most people go out and buy these cameras for security purposes, especially to thwart porch pirates, anyone who steals, you know, package off your porch which is unfortunately a common problem but what I found is that on the brighter side of things the cameras do indeed provide this amazing window into what happens outside your home with Mother Nature when you're not around or even you might be home but just not looking at your front door and it's just is something about having that in your fingertips, especially when you're away from home. Especially if you miss it, or you're at work and you're bored, and you could just look at home. It's comforting, and like here's like Animal Planet, but it's your own totally. yard. <laughs> you know, there's something about it being your yard that makes that squirrel. Oh, that's the chubby squirrel that we see every day, or Rocky raccoon, or whatever it is. And we put, sometimes find ourselves giving them little pet names, and you just start to you know, develop like a funny sort of relationship <laughs> with these animals.
0: That is exactly uh, what I wanted to bring up you talked to various people and you saw a lot of videos from from various people. One person in particular, they were constantly checking in on these series of cats that were going back and forth overnight. And they said, oh, you know, we get excited when we see that black and white one because he or she visits less frequently. So people like just like TV form these attachments to the characters that they see there.
3: Yeah, I mean, the one woman, she was seeing a hummingbird. She called the hummingbird Hetty and called it her Hetty cams. She actually ended up getting two more cams because of it. And then I was looking at one of the comments posted to the article, and someone said that they had also named a turkey. They named her Priscilla. I, I'm not <laughs> could to tell you why. We have in my backyard Gary the Groundhog. I'm sure every groundhog that comes is different, but they're all Gary as far course, as we're concerned yeah. in in my household. It's just hilarious to see them, and it's certainly you know a relief when you see it's just an animal and not a prowler come up on your uh, doorbell. But once you get hooked and you start seeing them, it's it's fun to look every day, especially in the case of the you know one of the examples was a woman who saw two chicks hatch and then she watched them grow up over the next two and a half weeks before they flew away. It was really, you know, nice just to see that evolution of time.
0: Between Amazon.com's Ring, Google Nest, and all these other makers, they collectively rang up about $370 million in global sales. That's up 51%. For- the $370 million was in
3: 2018 oh, and okay. that was up 51% for 2017. So like these cameras are really hot. Like they're the hot thing of 2018 and their sales are still going strong this year.
0: And Ring, on their website, Mm -hmm. they dedicated a section of videos to these things. You know, if people want to submit crazy videos or animals or things like that, that's so smart for them to do because people love this kind of stuff.
3: Well, they just started getting, people were submitting them without even asking, like they just started putting them. So they got so many, they said, okay, we'll make a section of it. And then they ended up doing this commercial using footage from one of the user's cameras of a bear getting into a car. And this is quite the bear. And he opens the door, gets in, sits down, and comes back out. It's just amazing. The folks at Ring said to me that even though they did, their mission is to provide security, it turns out that animals are among the most popular, if not the most popular sightings of that that's that people capture and cherish.
0: Yeah. One of the best ones is the footage of a small lizard. It's kind of puffing its throat. It's crawling around and that's total planet earth style video right there. Tell us about how often people are checking these because that was one of the things that kept coming up instead of checking social media, they're going to be checking their video all day and they just kind of felt a sense of comfort or just fascination with it. They were checking it 30 times a day.
3: The woman with the check, she was really out there. She checked it 30 times a day because she was just blown away. Most people I spoke to check it on average about a dozen times a day, a little more, a little less depending on their day. But every time they get an alert, some of them check it. I mean, one woman I spoke to didn't end up in the story, but she was so obsessed with her phone that she would pull over her car on the side of the road when she got an alert because she was just dying to see what it was. People look for things other than nature, but nature seems to be probably the most common sighting. One gentleman, said he was checking it all the time because a heron was treating his koi pond like a sushi joint there's video in the story you'll see he's a very good hunter and he does indeed snag a fish and so this guy's been checking his camera because he tries to go out there and deter the bird and scare it away but he has not been successful Um, this bird is determined
0: so well as far as Um, security and and (laughs) safety are concerned if you're not catching a porch pirate this has got to be the next best thing to see a lot of crazy little animals running around and and, and getting a kick out of it enjoying it
3: especially if you know, it's raccoons that, you know, they have the little masks on their eyes and <laughs> right. they, they, they're like prowlers. They're just cute prowlers. But, yeah, we, we, we are catching, quote unquote, thieves. But in this case, like I said, it's a heron stealing a fish. Sometimes it's raccoons stealing food out of a bird feeder. It is quite a trip to see all these different animals. They're a lot of fun to look at.
0: Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: My pleasure. Have a great one.